listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, good morning once again. We are glad that you are here. Um, hopefully you've had a chance to grab some coffee, grab some lots of sugary donuts out there to wake you up because uh, we have a pretty hefty topic on our, on our, on our hands this morning. Uh, mm-hmm. And so um, I've asked, obviously, you know, these two guys up here, uh, Griff and Mike, um, uh, it's uh, been a couple busy weeks. And so I was like, I need reinforcements here. Uh, and so I've called in uh, Griff and Mike to help me out, uh, and uh, I uh, hope this is a really relevant conversation and uh, practical conversation for you. Um, and we just have two weeks remaining. Uh, we have this week and next week. Next week we'll, we will be ending our summer sessions, going back into our discipleship hour, which we will have some more information on that. But... Um, this question uh, today, uh, and I think one of the things I wanted to do before we get going uh, is kind of talk about where we've been. Uh, remember, we, we've looked at several different questions so far in these last nine weeks, uh, eight weeks, and a, a lot of these are questions that we've tried to tackle from an angle that the culture is asking us. Uh, and so these are questions like, uh, you know, making, having a freedom of choice or uh, do we take the Bible literally? All of these things that maybe the culture is asking us, these are hopefully helping you, uh, equipping you. And I want to say this for the, probably the 15th time, we are not trying to make you better lawyers. We are not trying to help you win arguments at work, at home. That is not the point of what we're doing here. Okay, this is to equip you to help you love your neighbor even more. Uh, And the way that you do that is equipping yourself uh, to be able to answer some of these questions, putting yourself in their shoes almost. And so today we have the light topic of hell, okay? Uh, And we're asking a question, uh, how could a loving God send someone or send people to hell? And just like every week, uh, we've uh, asked the question before the question, why? Why are we asking this question? So that's the first question I'm going to ask you all. Why are we asking such a question in 2021, the year of our Lord? Uh, Yeah, I think my undergrad degree is in communications. And one of the things that we were taught um, in communication uh, is whenever you're asked a question, you need to make sure that you first understand the question. Uh, And so you've got to make sure that you're talking about the same terms, uh, that you're maybe understanding why, and that's why we're approaching it this way, why this question is asked. Um, And so I think that's really important as it relates to this question especially. Uh, In my personal experience, and this may be different for some of you, but whenever I've been asked this question or a similar question or this essentially this question. It may have been termed a little bit differently. It typically is coming from someone who is, A, not a believer, uh, in many cases is at the very least an agnostic, and may in many cases be even an atheist. And so they're asking this question out of a motivation of, uh, or essentially saying, one of the reasons that I can't believe in your God is because I can't believe that your loving God would send people to hell. Um, 
And again, I don't know if that's been your experience or not. Maybe this is not a question that you've uh, ever encountered much. But uh, I think that's, that's a lot of it. Uh, and the reason that um, it's so important to define terms. Um, and so what I'll do many times um, in an effort to not be argumentative um, and to kind of, you know, hey, i got to find the thing that's going to one-up this person or whatever. And, and we've made it clear, I think, that that's not what we're trying to do here is make you, you know, better in your argumentation necessarily, um, is I will ask clarifying questions. And I think that that kind of opens the door to say, I'm interested to hear more of what you have to say, um, if that makes sense. And so I think that's one of the things that we have to do with this. And so today, you know, part of what we want to do here is define, what, what, do you, what do you mean by a loving God? What does that mean to you? Um, and so when they ask that, I would say, you're, you're kind of assuming then that there is a God who exists, right? And so I think part of the reason that this question becomes so vital is because it really comes down to the very nature of God himself. Um, and so that obviously needs clarity in our culture today. Um, yeah. Well, I think that's a good answer. <laughs> uh, I love that when in the book that we're going through and looking at this chapter that it said, hey, this is the hardest question covered. And I was like, thanks, Jace, for inviting me on <laughs> to start on that one. And so, uh, but really... You're welcome. Yeah. But the question, uh, you know, you had Kyle for like three weeks here, you know. <laughs> uh, but smartest guy we know. And, uh, but, you know, the reality is, is every other question pales in, in comparison with the weight of it. Um, and I do think that people... Um, just going back to something Kyle said uh, last week or the week before, it's the reality that realize that we aren't the only ones who've ever asked these questions. You're never going to ask a question that hasn't been already been asked. And at the same time, uh, that people who um, have poured their life into this and uh, thought through, read, and, and they're on both sides of things, but especially on the, our side as, as believers, there are believers who struggled with this. There are believers who have dug deep and, 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 and search the scriptures and, and, and still believe, and, and here's the reasons why. And so, you know, the reality is, is we can let some things, uh, there's some people who let questions like that, and they, they only think about it in their own mind, stop, and then use that as a reason not to get dig deeper. And um, the reality is, is like our, the biggest questions of life, we have to dig deep. We have to answer and not just, um, just kind of have a quick kind of a subconscious block answer. Uh, and this is one of those, I think, for sure. What's interesting about this question, uh, when we even talk about hell, is um, I think it's generally agreed that people like justice. They're, they're pro-justice. So when you're watching a movie or a TV show and there's not that, like, agreement at the end where the bad guy gets it or, you know, that type of thing, that bothers us. And I think one of the, the big things about hell um, is a lot of people don't think it agrees with justice. So it goes back even further to understanding who God is, to understanding what sin is, to understanding what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so... Let me just say this. I think that 
there's a lot of people have a problem with hell. Yes. We don't have a problem with heaven. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, we have this... An idea of heaven. A, an sure. idea of heaven or, you know, everybody, you know, uh, well, he's gone on to the great fishing hole in the sky, you know, and that's supposed to be heaven to that person. Uh, and so, but we don't have a problem with that. And uh, I think that's something important to note is that we have this, we want something that passed pass this life. Uh, but then we don't want, it's like, we want only, only this. And it's like, you know, the Bible says, it, you know, eternity is in our hearts. I mean, and so I think, you know, people do generally, that's a good point. Yeah. So let's go, let's define some terms because I think that's very important when it comes to this question, because there's, this question is loaded, right? It's loving God, uh, and defining what hell is. There's a, uh, a, um, a word in there, sinned, okay? Uh, and so let's talk about those things. Um, and I think, Mike, you have some defining terms on here. So let's just kind of go through those. Yeah, just to kind of let you behind the scenes a little bit, what we do in these is we kind of share a Google Doc um, over the days coming up to this. And so if some of this sounds like it's rambling a little bit, that's because it is. Um, I just kind of made some rambling notes on this subject and threw it into the Google Doc and everything. And so I hope it doesn't come off as disjointed and, and um, confusing to you. I think a lot of times, and this illustration helped me years ago, I think a lot of people, as it relates to this subject kind of have this vision of all of humanity all lined up and God comes along and says you're going to heaven you're going to heaven you're going to you're going to hell you're going to hell you're going to hell you're going to heaven you're going to hell you're going to heaven and they would go what is up with that but theologically we we can't believe that right i mean biblically biblically we would say here's the lineup of humanity and we're all destined for hell every one of us and so regardless of your uh, soteriological position, what you believe about salvation itself, and sometimes that's put in other terms, and I don't want to go off on a, a rabbit trail of Calvinism versus Arminianism and all those sorts of things, but um, you know, what you believe about human nature is critically important. Critically important. Uh, it's my firm belief that Scripture teaches clearly what we would call total depravity. In other words, th there is not a glimmer of goodness in any of us that would say, I deserve this. <laughs> um, no, we're often, I mean, the Bible makes it clear, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I think one of the reasons this question is so difficult or on so many levels is because there are a lot of important things that intersect really here at this question. You know, like the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. <laughs> I mean, it, that's, that all intersects right here, you know, at this thing. And so that's why it's important that we understand. So what, what, what do we mean when we say a loving God? Um, you know, I was just thinking yesterday, we probably don't have a problem with a loving God even sending certain people to hell. <laughs> like we could go, Hitler, boom, yeah. I mean, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, boom, deserves it. You know, all those things. And in all of that, we forget that we deserve the same thing. <laughs> but again, it's that whole thing of, you know, the bookshelf that I talked about a number of weeks ago. We view ourselves on this bookshelf. And while we would acknowledge that there are some people on the, the top shelves above us that are a little better, 
you know, but obviously there are a lot more people on the shelves below us who are worse than us. And as long as we can kind of maintain that, but God says, no, he divides it the other way. <laughs> he doesn't say, hey, there's certain people above this certain line that, hey, I, I, you know, you're favorable to me, and so you're going to get to go to heaven. And people, no, I mean, he divides people from the top to the bottom. Jesus said that you fall into one of two categories. Either you are in Christ or you are still in Adam, lost and dead in your trespasses and sins. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it, it, obviously in our culture, we like to emphasize uh, the truth that God is love, right? God is love. And so that, you know, spurs other statements like, well, God just, you know, uh, can't, can't we just let love be love and everything else? And so I, I think, um, you know, our culture often defines a loving God as a heavenly uh, kind of a grandpa type figure that likes to dote on us uh, and is mostly non-confrontational and uh, very benevolent uh, and then is tolerant uh, of whatever it is that we want to do. Uh, kind of the common picture of a grandpa who likes to spoil us. Why don't you just have one more cookie, you know? Uh, and they think that that's what God is consumed with, is consumed with our happiness. And so what we forget, and here's a very important truth. If you don't hear anything else today, and I, I'm not saying this because it's something original with me or because I'm saying it, but, but here's the thing. God's love is not a pampering love. God's love is a perfecting love. It's a purifying love. That's why Scripture speaks of God's love, even in the context of discipline, and it's something that we parents can readily understand because we know that if I really love my kids, I'm not going to let them do whatever they want to do. That's the most unloving thing you could possibly do, right? Uh, and so I think that's why this question is uh, so critical in our culture because it, um, it suggests that there is an accountability. And that's what we often say in, in atheist circles. Many I mean, One of the quotes that I think I, I recorded here is, Basically, they say, it's not so much that I'm convinced uh, that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. Because if there is a God, then I am accountable to him. <laughs> uh, and so, hopefully, that makes sense. You know, and, and we forget that, yes, God is love, but God is just. God is just. And, and we, we want to highlight all, you know, all of the scriptures that talk about the love of God but, but God is, is just and holy, and so that means that all sin must be punished. The sin of, you know, Hitler and Jeffrey Dahmer and Mike Lovely, it all must be punished. So on, on the note of sin, Griff, kind of speak to that because uh, you have some notes here about what sin is, and I think that's a good segue into kind of what you have written down here. Um, so let's define what sin is because I think that pushes us to a point where Okay, if we're, we are sinners, there must be justice for sin. So kind of speak to that for just a moment. And I think in our culture, we've erased sin, if we'd all agree on that, right? And so uh, when you do that, then a culture that has erased sin uh, then erases any punishment for that um, and any wrongdoing. And so... Um, <clears throat> So when it says, you know, the question, why would a loving God send people to hell? Then that presupposes, I, I think, in there that um, the statement is that we're kind of, we're good. Uh, that we deserve 
something better. And Mike said a minute ago, no, no, we all deserve hell. And, and that hit me sitting right here because I think, well, my goodness, and all the good things I do, and uh, you're a good, good this, and you're good this, and you're good that. And then I, I think better of myself that I'm better than someone else, and God should love me. And then it reminds, you know, it just hit me like a plank right then. It's like, I deserve that because I don't naturally think that. Now, I naturally think some other people deserve it, but I don't naturally think I deserve that. And that, that's really hard. You know, we... Um, we don't see our own sin. We don't believe we're capable of the, of the worst things. Uh, we don't think that we could become that person uh, that we see arrested on the news for child porn. We don't, we don't think I could ever be that person. Uh, and, and just all those kind of things. But one of the things that in this book, man, this statement really got me, was um, she said, it has been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if we could see each other's thoughts. No friendship or relationship in the world would last a day. One day, would, would we be married? Your wife is smiling, laughing back there, but I just saw that out of the corner of my eye. Uh, and so uh, just one day, you know, it said, run that test. Would your marriage survive? If, and we think that's a, a relationship we're seen and known and fully exposed, and yet, no, we're not. And uh, would, would, your, would any friendship last? No, it's hard enough to have friends anyway with what we show and what we say and what we hide. And then it's like, man, our, our children would be crushed is what she said in there. And so we manage our self-disclosure. And, and, you know, and even in that, that, that kind of points back to who we really are, I think, and, and summarize who we are in sin is that that's our true self. Not the one we always talk about, the one we put on social media is not our true self, but really even the one we show people who see us more than anybody else and see our, our flaws and our warts, there's still stuff they haven't seen. And the reality is, is I am a sinner. And because um, like Jesus said, hey, you know, you didn't commit murder, but you got angry at that guy in your thoughts or lust and all those same things equals this. And, and man, this right up here, I'm guilty of all that. And the reminder is that I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve God at all. And yet he loves me. It's just mind boggling. Yeah. It's so one of the most famous parables about hell uh, is found in Luke 16, uh, Lazarus and the rich man. And I was listening to a commentary on this yesterday, and one of the things that I heard that was fascinating <laughs> is um, one of the only times, okay, the contrast between these two men, one has a name and one does not. Lazarus, who is uh, poor, who is most likely homeless, uh, is found in heaven. The rich man is now cast to hell. There's this chasm in between. There's this conversation. And one of the things that we find about this rich man is that his identity is in what he has. And so this rich man is not just, it's, a na- it's his identity. And so one of the things that, we, that I heard that I just thought was fascinating, I had to pause and think about it, was hell is just your freely chosen false identity going on forever. Think about that for just a second. Your freely chosen false identity going on forever. 
Because one of the things that you, uh, that you notice about that parable, if you go read it, is what does the rich man ask? One of the first things that he asked. Did, for the water, exactly. He's actually asking Lazarus to still serve him while he's in hell. He's continuing his false identity forever. And I love what Tim, Tim Keller says. I know I quote him all the time. I'm sorry. He's, he, he's great. So, um, I know. He's like, he says, uh, hell is your freely chosen false identity going on forever. And he goes on to say, hell is nothing more than what you asked for. Hell is nothing more than what you asked for. And what that says is, is that is a commentary on Romans 1. Right? What does Romans 1 say? 124. It says, if I can find it, it says, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What is sin? Sin is God saying, chase it. Go. You have freedom to do it, Go. And hell is an extension of that forever. It's chasing your sin forever and ever and ever. And so what is, and so this all comes together because it's a definition of sin. It's an understanding that there's no, you have no good apart from, from who God is. And all of this goes back to even what I think Lexi and I spoke about uh, maybe three on third week or so about our freedom, right? There is, I believe, in the American ideal is Romans one twenty four. Chase it. You're free to do it. Go. And so when we think about this doctrine of hell, uh, Tim Keller, I'll say, I'll put it on him. This is not my quote, so I can, you can go talk to him about it. Uh, it says, the doctrine, hell, the, the doctrine of hell gets us as close to the American understanding of freedom we can get to in the Bible. Hmm. Because why? Because it's chasing whatever our hearts desire. And here's, what, here's what's so great, and I think we're going to talk about this in each of us. There is growing up inside of us, um, our destination of hell, unless God does something to redeem that. And he does. So that's kind of my next question here. All right. So let's talk about, okay, we talked about sin. We kind of talked about what hell is. But let's talk about how we are even um, justified. So God doesn't, quote, unquote, send people to hell. He saves people from hell. And so how do we get there? What are the things that we believe that save us from eternal death? Yeah, one of the things that I was struck by in this particular chapter of McLaughlin's book um, actually came as a quote from another author named Sam Harris. Uh, and the book is entitled Free Will. And I was mentioning how uh, this question has this huge intersection between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And that's been debated, trust me, forever, okay? You go to any Bible college, you go to any seminary, you get all those things, okay? And so what I found in that conversation is that there's a general misunderstanding of a lot of things as it relates to that. So, like, I believe firmly in the absolute sovereignty of God, I don't think there's anything that happens that surprises God, that is outside of God's 
um, attention, anything of that nature, right? But in his sovereignty, he does give us the ability to, he gives us this freedom that Jace is talking about. And so here's where this kind of runs amok in our world. And that's Sam Harris um, ascribes to uh, and promotes what we would call scientific determinism. And so here's what he says. He argues that two men who committed a series of heinous crimes against an innocent family, and we're talking about sexual abuse, murder, even all these things, they had no real choice in the matter. Their actions were determined by their past experiences and their neurological states. And so Harris claims the idea, this is his quote, that we as conscious beings are deeply responsible for the character of our mental lives and subsequent behavior is simply impossible to map onto reality. So McLaughlin clarifies, she says, Harris's scientific determinism scratches away at our deepest beliefs that there is a moral fabric to the universe. I don't know about you, but in, in most of the conversations I've had, and I've had very few where we couldn't come to some basic agreement, even though we may have disagreed on a lot of issues, that there is a point, and this is where I would you know, often kind of push back with another question, is where is the point of that's no longer acceptable? Okay, even as it relates to like um, sexual freedom and all those kind of things. And so, you know, some would say, well, I'm just, I'm just living out my identity. I'm just living out who I am, right? Well, do we say that of the murderer? They're just living out who they are? They're just living out? I mean, that's kind of this scientific determinism. And so that there's a moral fabric to the universe at which it's just widely understood and accepted that, I mean, you know, this is wrong. Um, that right and wrong or are more than dreams and that you and I, uh, weak, contingent as we are, are capable of love just as we are capable of cruelty. And so it goes back to that. And she makes the point in the book, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially to say that, hey, if we're not going to hold um, a Larry Nasser, for example, that's one of the illustrations that she uses in this chapter, uh, the, the, the guy who was accused and is now doing time for sexually abusing gymnasts primarily. He was the, the team physician or whatever. Rachel Denhollander, uh, was the, really the first victim that came forward, um, a firm believer in Christ and everything. And, um, and so she makes the point that, if, well, if, if, if Nasser can't be held accountable for his actions, then we would also have to say that Rachel Denhollander doesn't really love her kids, for example. She's not capable of that as well. And so I, I hope that that, um, that, that makes it, it. The idea is this. If the worst criminal can't be held accountable for his or her actions, uh, freeing them from moral agency, then neither can we say love is love. Uh, and I think, that's, I think that's where, our, again, our culture is so uh, confused because now, uh, even more so than ever, we've become so much more uh, self-absorbed, so much more self-centered, so much more, hey, live out who you are, live out your identity, live out, you know. Um, and when it comes to an accountability and all those things, I'm just living out who I am. Um, and so in that condition, in our lostness, <laughs> then we say, how, how is it possible that we can be redeemed from that? That's where this word is so, so critically important. I, th I think on that one part where she, Den Holder was, I mean, we're talking about uh, Nasser versus Den Holder loving her kids. And the reality is, is that we want to believe in heaven and not hell. We want to believe in love, but not evil. 
We, you know, and we want these one-sided things, and you really can't have one without the other when you really look at it. Um, and that, that is uh, kind of mind-boggling and just, uh, but, you know, it just, um, one of the things they said is, you know, why did we get so angry at evil, right, in the world? And you see school children shot, you see women raped, you see people beaten because of the color of their skin, and they're, they're innocent uh, in our eyes. And when you analyze uh, why we get angry, it's because love, and you almost can't have one without the other. Uh, and, and because of our love and because, um, you know, the more we love, the more easily, if we're connected to that, more easily anger is triggered. And so uh, we want one without the other in this question, too. Uh, you know, we want loving God, but we don't want a just God. And you, we, want, we want heaven, but we don't want hell. And so uh, those are, they have to be there. You can't have good without evil, and you can't have night without darkness. And I mean, or night without light, darkness and light. It, it, you you don't see the the other side without the opposite. So, in this question, I think what we're trying to, I think what y'all are trying to communicate, um, is this idea that hell is something that is deserved, um, that God uh, is is love, but also a God of wrath. Um, and I think one of the things that is that Griff that you're onto is we often like to put God's attributes in little silos. So I'm going to go to the loving God here. I'm going to go to the angry God here. I'm going to go to his compassion here. I'm going to go to his patience here, where in reality, they're all intertwined. And so when you think about the angriest that you've been in your life, a lot of the time that's connected to some sort of injustice to someone that you love. So when I think about um, if someone were to uh, endanger my children or to uh, hurt my wife, I think, uh, you know, I'm not a fighter, all right? I'm more of like, you know, a slap and run type of guy. Uh, but um, I might have to bow up. And, and so when those types of things happen, there is anger, but it's out of love. And so, but here's the reality, that it's an imperfect example because none of us live out a righteous anger very well. And God in himself has, without sin, a sense of anger because of his love for us. And I think one of the things that's this common misconception is God sends people to hell and people are crawling back and he's just laughing with his arms crossed like you got what you deserve type of thing. But I think one of the things that you see uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus is what happens when Jesus looks upon Jerusalem and sees the people turning away from him. What does he do? He cries. He weeps over this city. Is that a God that revels in our destruction? Is that a God that enjoys that? If Jesus is God, we see a perfect example of what God does when he sees people turning away from him. He weeps, cries. And I think this goes along with the parable, because one of the things that you, 
you see the rich man, going back to Luke 16, one of the things he doesn't do is he doesn't ask out, you know? That's kind of weird. You'd be like, hey, can we rearrange this real quick? But what does he do? He, number one, asks for water, and then he just says, can you go and tell my brothers? And I think that's part of it because hell, and this may, I would love to talk to you about this, but hell is a chosen thing. It's the sense of your identity going on forever, like I said. It is something that um, if God does not save us from, to give us a taste for him, we're there. Because I think, Griff, you speak to this, I think. Well, there's a quote. I don't, but I quoted C.S. Lewis. Right, yes. And uh, the previous Keller. Right, Uh, And so he says the door to hell is locked on the inside. Yes, yeah. And that question is opposite opposite of of that. Mm -hmm. And then the reality is, and he goes on to say, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Now, it took me a while. to. Re- I read this several, <laughs> several. It, uh, uh, it says, those who say to God, thy will be done. Okay? And then the other is those who God says to them, thy will be done. And the reality is, I mean, that's pretty, uh, I had never really thought about that. I mean, that he, the, uh, the rich man doesn't ask to get out. Yeah. And uh, that's a uh, that just goes to that right there, right. Um, and so it's it's very powerful. Um, you know, one of the things I read and and says, you know, how can a good um, God send people to hell? There's assumptions in that statement. The other one is that God sends people to hell, and the reality is is that He doesn't. We choose it ourselves, and that that is hard to communicate. To it's very hard to communicate to someone who doesn't. I believe in sin, yes, uh, or their own wrongdoing. Then, but the reality is that that's our that's our belief. So, let's talk about the cross, <laughs> the gospel, for just a second, because I think that's a very important conver- uh, point of conversation in this whole topic. Uh, because one of the things that we see it, in the cross, and I don't want to take your talking points, but is this inter um, interplay. Of love and wrath. Because what the cross shows us is that you can have love and wrath in the same spot. Perfect illustration. Perfect illustration. <laughs> Thank you, God. Uh, yeah. And so let's talk about what the gospel does. Because one of the things that we've, we've stated is that God is a loving God. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he does is he says, here's a way to be forgiven of your sins. Here's a way to say, thy will be done, so that you can enjoy eternal bliss, eternal happiness, eternal joy in me forever. But how does that happen? Because hmm. we, we sin. Like we've, we've established that we're sinful, that we deserve eternal punishment. So how are, are things reversed? One of the things that I think McLaughlin does a great job of in this chapter is she points out the significance of the cup in the garden. Um, the, you know, we often associate that with the suffering that Christ was facing, obviously. But in that, and that's, yeah, physical suffering, the, you know, all those things. And he says, let this cup. But throughout Scripture, you see that 
most often this cup is a reference to the wrath of God being poured out on sinful human beings. Uh, and so, you know, yes, in that, his excruciating pain and suffering and all those things. I mean, what does scripture say? It says he bore in his own body <laughs> the, the, the sins, uh, our sins. Um, uh, that's why, you know, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is so vital to us as believers, as Christians. Uh, that, I mean, if I had to sum up the gospel in four words, I would say it this way, Christ in my place. Christ in my place. Um, and I, I think that's where, you know, so then, you know, the, and, and this is probably, you know, not the best way to respond to somebody who's asking you this question is go, well, the better question would be, why does God allow anybody to go to heaven? You know, but theologically, that's what we would say. I mean, you know, biblically, we would say that's really the better question is why would God in his love and mercy and grace, so here's the love aspect of it, why would God allow any of us who all deserve death and hell and separation from him for eternity to spend eternity with him? Um, that's, that's the bigger question that should mystify us. That's the scandal of grace that we sometimes call it. Is, it's the scandal of the gospel itself uh, is, is God's redemptive plan in Christ as he poured out his wrath upon himself, really, because we're talking about God in the flesh. And the reality is, um, you know, Jesus is not just a passive victim, another victim like someone going to hell. uh, At the cross, God, Jesus, that's part of him on the cross. So so God made a substitution, and and, and the substitution is himself. And the reality is, is um, that's where the beauty of uh, the cross in this is that he's both the executioner and the condemned. Uh, and so we can't, comes back to who's sending who. I mean, and, and so he sent his son to be the atonement uh, and for our sin and made a way. And, um, you know, you got to look at that. Yeah. So I think to close here, we just have a few more minutes left. Um, one of the things that I, I hope to communicate in this question um, is that the stakes are high, and I think that's the way Griff started. I think part of the reason this question is so important is because the stakes are so high. Um, but I, I, wanna, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Um, I want you to think about what happens when you are saved. Okay, there is, it's not just that we can get out of hell, like we got our fire insurance card in our back pocket for the rest of our lives. That's not the point of the gospel. That is a, uh, what's the word? Um, part of it? I don't know. Yeah. Sure, that was a terrible way of Good. explaining it. Good, way to go. Uh, but uh, I can't think of the word. Anyway, so when that is, uh, essentially that is what one of the, what, that's got to be a word there. I can't think of Aspect of it. Sure, it's like, aspects. Uh-huh. But one of the things that the gospel does is we are saved and we become a new creation. And in this new creation, Colossians 3 would speak of a new self. And this new self is putting the false identities behind us. And one of the things that Jesus calls us to do is do what? Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. 
And so when we are saved, it's not just that we have our fire insurance. It's we, we are a new creation. We put to death the old self, and a new self is going forward. In uh, a podcast called Knowing Faith, um, there's a guy on there, uh, Pastor Kyle Worley, talks about this as a sense of limbering up for heaven, okay, that we're going to get loose, that as we are sanctified, we are going forward to enjoy God's presence because part of God's presence is um, being shaped in the likeness of him. Colossians 3 speaks about that we are being made into the image of Christ. And what is heaven? Heaven is our image of Christ fully realized. And so here's the reality. You will not enjoy heaven if you do not love Christ. (laughs) I mean, heaven is not uh, your favorite things uninterrupted. Okay, it's not sitting on the couch watching NFL football where your team always wins. That is not what heaven's like. That's a lot of the time the way that we describe it, right? Oh, they're eating steak. They, they can do their favorite things all the time. What heaven is, is what we desire on earth fully realized if you're in Christ. So think about that in the opposite way. In our sinful state, what do we desire? Sin, we desire things for ourselves. We're jealous, we're, we're, think, we're, we're very selfish. And if we are not redeemed, if we're not changed from the inside, what hell is, is we're gonna get really, really good at living out the things of ourselves. Isolated from God. And so here's the reality. What God did on the cross was just like Griff said, he became the executioner and the condemned. He gave us a way to be redeemed. And so here's what you would ask a question uh, to someone who would reject the doctrine of hell. What are you asking God to do? What are you asking God to do? Well, you're asking him to wipe out sins at all costs and give you a fresh start. Guys, he did that. (laughs) He he did that on the cross. But here's the reality. People that choose hell are people that won't ask for forgiveness. They don't recognize what Jesus has done for them. And so one of the things, one of the aspects of the gospel that I hope that you hear is that Jesus himself is the perfect substitute for us. But one of the things that when we when we trust in him, it's not just this car that says, hey, guess what? We don't have to go down there anymore. It's this new creation putting to death the old self, a new creation, and living a life that conforms to Jesus. And guess what? That's going to limber you up to enjoy God for eternity. And so I know that's kind of like a different route from this question, but I think it's important because I think we often think about hell as just, let's avoid that, Mm -hmm. but not understanding that new creation, that new self is something that we're getting ready to enjoy for eternity. Yeah. 
I think it, it reminds me of the thought or the dichotomy between so many people viewing salvation as merely what we are saved from mm. and not what we are saved to. Um, you know, and I, th- I think that's uh, so critically important. And I, I think, it, it, you know, you, it's very telling when you spend a lot of time, at, like preachers do, around funerals and um, death and those kinds of things. Uh, the things that people will say, um, even well-meaning things, and in an effort to console their friends and loved ones and neighbors and all those things, tell you a lot about their understanding of, of some of these things. And that's why you will hear things like, uh, similar to what Jace was just talking about, you know, oh, he's, you know, he's up in the big rodeo in the sky now, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, if heaven's go, a rodeo, yeah, for sure. Bro. I mean, like, I don't or, know, or fishing, um, hey, but we me. do. I mean, I think that a lot of times we think of it in terms of what are the things that we love here on earth, and that's why I will often respond this way because people ask you questions like, um, "Will my pet be in heaven?" For example, my my horse or my dog or what you know, all those kinds of things. And I say, I don't, I don't know that I have all the answers to all of those questions fully and completely figured out and everything, but I do know this: no one's going to be in heaven thinking to themselves. This place would be amazing if only. If Sparky was here, this would yeah, really if only. Cherry I mean, on top. If only Trigger was here with and, me. And we're I dog mean, and, and we're dog families. <laughs> oh, so yeah. Unlike Jason. Something yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was sorry. But it's just it's interesting. And the things that you know, and you'll hear people say, Well, I don't know, like a non believer go, Well, I don't know, heaven seems boring, just like sitting on a cloud all day strumming a harp. Well, first of all, I don't know where you find that in the Bible. I mean, like, there's no, yeah. that, you know, and even the well-meaning thought that, you know, our loved ones are they're angels now. God needed another angel. I, I know what people, they, they mean well when they say those sorts of things, but um, it's just, uh, it's a misunderstanding of, of, right. of eternity and what that means for us. So next week, or last week, we're looking at the question, can Jesus be true for me and not for you? And I think next week we're going to look at some of the things that we've uh, maybe you're like, man, I, they should have gone deeper into like saving grace. I, that's next week. And so um, these uh, hopefully gave you some talking points. We're way over time. Uh, but I hope that uh, this was helpful for you. Uh, obviously, guys, there's so much more to talk about uh, in this conversation. Uh, but I hope we gave you some practical talking points uh, to be able to take with you. So let me just wrap it up with this. And I think it's interesting that Griff and I both put this into the notes is uh, it, we referred to that Rachel Den Hollander and and some of you kind of followed maybe that trial and some of those things. And maybe you missed uh, Rachel Den Hollander's statement to Larry Nasser. This really sums up, uh, I think this whole question and what we're considering today. It says the Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Can you imagine the offended saying this to the offender? And she goes on to say, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Yeah. Amen. And I think the same, what the author says, is that Dan Holder says that to him, all well-knowing 
that she is standing on the same equal ground as Larry Nasser herself. And that shook me. I mean, that shook me, the reality of who we really are. Uh, and someone who really understands the gospel and understands the cross and themselves and the free gift of God and the erasing of the past. Because if there's anyone that doesn't deserve it, it's, it's him. But if anyone doesn't deserve it, it's also me. <laughs> and the reality of, of being that person and that uh, is, um, is the gospel. Yeah. Well, let's pray together and then we'll close. God, we thank you for today. Um, God, we're just struck by um, your endless compassion and grace and mercy towards us. Throughout your word, you're described um, as a God that is slow to anger, that is abounding in steadfast love, that puts our sin as far as the east is from the west. And God, I thank you that you are a God of compassion. Forgive us for when we do not represent, represent you in a way that reflects your character. God, help us be people of compassion and love and truth. And God, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the gospel in which you saw a people that were messed up and pursued them. That you loved us so much that you put all the weight of sin upon your son. That we would not have to bear the weight of our condemnation. So that we can declare that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're so thankful for that truth. So God, I pray that we uh, as your people, would worship you in light of the truth that we have heard this morning, that we have a reason to declare victory as we're going to sing this morning. And I pray that we would love each other the way that you have loved us. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.